Business lesbian, the business lesbian. That's me. Hello. From the future, this is Brittany Diedrich in 2023. This episode was recorded in 2022, in September-ish, September 8th, I believe. So please take the timing into consideration as you consume the episode. Hello, welcome to the show Business Lesbian again. I'm here sharing a mic with my dear friend, Dr. Anjali Bagra. And so it might sound a little funny, we're just making making things work. But yeah, I'm really excited to have you on the show. And yeah, can you start out by telling us just a little bit about yourself? Like, who are you? Well, hello. Thank you for having me on. And uh, before we begin the conversation, I want to give a huge shout out to you, Brittany, what a great idea to have this amazing platform. So congratulations and kudos uh, on this amazing podcast. As you mentioned, I'm Dr. Anjali Bagra. I uh, work at Mayo Clinic. I'm a physician. I'm a clinical investigative internist in my clinical hat of seeing patients at Mayo. I also have a very important and what I see as meaningful administrative role, which I have the distinct honor and privilege of serving in. I serve as the medical director of the Office of Equity, Inclusion, and Diversity at Mayo. That's amazing. Yes. So I remember when I met you for the first time in the program, we were going around and like when you said that, because I serve on a diversity and inclusion committee for construction mm-hmm. and you said that and I was like, oh my gosh, I get to, I get to work with someone who's like making such a big difference. And so I was so excited to get to know you and it's just really cool to see the work you're doing and I'm excited to have you on the show and show you off. Yeah, well, mutual feelings there. I am so excited to learn from you and and to have you in class as well. And also, I'm really excited to do this in person. It feels very legit with all of your hardware set up here. So can't wait to dig into. (laughs) I love it. Would you mind? So at the top of our show, we read the rules of engagement. So would you mind reading those for the audience? Oh, I'd be happy to read the rules of engagement, which I absolutely love. So the rules are assume positive intent, engage in dialogue, not debate, hold yourself and others accountable for demonstrating cultural humility, be open, transparent, and willing to admit mistakes, embrace the power of humble listening, create trusting and safe spaces where a little bit of discomfort is okay. Commit to having conversations that matter by speaking up to bridge divides. Suspend your right to be offended. Look for an opportunity to be second. And your voice is important. Ensure that it is heard. Yay! Thank you for doing that. So I kind of skipped ahead where I kind of introduced you already, but we are in the SEMBA program at the University of Minnesota together. So that's the Carlson Executive MBA program, and it's a pretty exceptional group of humans. You're one of my favorites. Don't tell the others until they listen to this, but I'd stand behind it in front of them too. So I don't know. It's It's been a really interesting class. We just had our first negotiation stuff mm-hmm. this morning, which was an interesting way to see everyone else. And it just... I don't know. It's I'm excited for the program and to see where things go. Mm-hmm. But yeah. And if I may just make a comment, Brittany, during our negotiations session this morning, wow, I see so many of these 
rules that I just read out on your behalf because uh, <laughs> you created them. And it's interesting. I felt like you came to my rescue in one of the <laughs> negotiations with, you know, make your voice heard. So yes, we, you know, there are things we learn in school and, but then the school of life is where you implement a lot of these technical skills. And I'm just, you know, I'm just reflecting on the friendships and relationships we make during, um, for both of us during this um, Simba training that led to you and I sitting down and having this um, conversation. I think it's pretty neat. Yeah, I love it. I think um, I'm worried that I'm going to not do well in the negotiation class because I'm so, I do assume positive intent with everyone. So I'm just Mm -hmm. trusting. And the second half of our lecture today was just about how to determine who to trust, when to trust, how to reciprocate trust. and, Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, and I did, I got, burned a little bit but it was it was positive intent i don't you know hold we had a um a market where we sold fake watches and real watches and i was supposed to be a buyer yeah. of authentic watches and i got i got duped but i don't think that my seller intended to do that we yeah. talked about it afterwards so i might be i don't know we'll see if i make it in negotiation landscape because i'm just like you know it's okay yeah i I, we talked about it i truly believe that it was a misunderstanding yeah yeah i don't know you know i've reflected on that myself i feel like these kind of environments where we get a set of rules there is a lot of role playing involved and i try to segregate the people from the process because it can be very disheartening Certainly disturbing. If somebody you thought was a good friend of yours and here comes a chance of role play and, you know, we start equating or confusing people with processes, which I think is fundamentally at the core of when we look at equity, inclusion and diversity, you know, there is a lot of dichotomy in what people see as fair and unfair. And so just back to the negotiation class and the connection between the two is, you know, segregating people from processes because people tend to identify a lot with who looks like them, who thinks like them, because that's where we tend to be more trusting versus, oh, you know, you don't really look like me. You don't think like me. You don't talk like me. The kind of things that are important to me are not the ones that are important to you. That's where it becomes really hard to build trust. And for anything that we do within EID, equity, inclusion, and diversity, you know, what's very core to everything is trusting a process. And people just kind of are part of that process. I'm going off of the script I gave to Anjali of questions, but (laughs) the other thing that I thought, and I I was like kind of looking to you when I asked the question in class, but did you see how trust is sticky Mm -hmm. based on your initial perception of people. And I just thought that like, no matter how long you've worked with someone, it barely moved. There's all these research studies and maybe I can figure out how to upload a graph. Um, But it was the belief that people are benevolent and that they have good intent and that you can trust them is based on that first impression. And bias is such a strong indicator. So it's, you know, making sure that you're aware of your bias going into a negotiation so you don't like get someone stuck mm-hmm. and being like, I don't find you trustworthy. Mm-hmm. Like it just that to me was really interesting when we were talking about it in class and I tried to bring it up and it was it was just like, yes, that is an yeah. accurate observation. <laughs> I'll be honest. I was tempted to make a comment or at least share my thoughts on that. It was striking to see how we trust or not somebody based on ability 
even before we've spoken with them. I think the space in which I work, this is the most difficult thing to work around because the trust based on ability is something we form very quick. And this is where stereotypes come in. So if you're a woman doctor, if you're a woman surgeon, if you're a person of color and you hold technical skill, which is not a predominant narrative of that demographic, right? You know, it becomes really hard sometimes for the individuals who come from those backgrounds to disprove, you know, people who are, you know, making judgments and not putting the trust that they should be putting in. So I struggled with that. What was really sad to see was the fact that it did not change over time despite demonstration of ability. And that's where I feel like a lot of what we notice in organizational culture, I would say it's true across industry. It's not unique to healthcare. Well, that's where I have most of my observation, research, and practice. But it is not unique to any one field that we humans make judgments on, on how we trust people based on ability, which is the quick trust or the swift trust. And we don't change our trust metric of that individual. So what I'm really trying to say is women of color or people with, you know, who are not binary, you know, there is a decent amount of struggle and stereotypes associated with abilities. Well, and the thing that was frustrating to me was that it appears difficult to overcome. Like, even if you are, like, like you said, Mm -hmm. the belief in your ability is stuck. And so coming from construction as a woman, even I had, you know, the nepotism, amazing boost, but still I was a woman in construction and I'd go to job sites sometimes and, you know, I'd go to, I remember I was working on a crew and I was lifting up, moving these things called spanels. They're like 60 or 70 pounds a piece. Mm -hmm. And they were divvying out work for the morning. And the question was, are you going to be able to lift that? Like, Mm -hmm. and I'm like, yes, I can actually. So it's just interesting. And then even we were playing golf the other day after class and I was with three guys and Afterwards, I returned the push carts, and when I was doing it, I, like I was wearing golf attire, and I was returning the cart, and this man comes up to me, and he's like, "Do you work here? Like, can you help me figure out what to do?" And I was like, "No, I was just golfing, just like you." And I don't know if it was just like the presence mm-hmm. of a woman on the course, and mm-hmm. like it was just like, I was like, "No, I'm, a, I just golfed. I don't know anything about that." And he's like, "Well, what time do you shut down tonight?" And I'm like, "I, I honestly don't know. I just told you I don't yeah. work here." Yeah. So it's just. Interesting. Yeah, I think both of us have so many stories to share. I'll pick uh, one of mine, and I've reflected on that. So, in the inpatient setting, which is, you know, I work in the hospital as well as the clinic. And in the hospital, I work with learners or residents who are learners in training after they've completed medical school. And I remember this time we were rounding, we were on rounds, and I was with three other white men who were my learners. So I'm five, four and a half, and all three of my learners were above six feet. And every single new patient that we saw that day on rounds was struggling with who the boss was on the team. And my learners, I want to give them all the credit. They kept reorienting what she's our boss, she's our boss. So my biggest takeaway from that day was to always 
wear heels on rounds. <laughs> so I ended up wearing three to four inch heels every day on rounds. I was like, all right, we're going to do this yeah. differently. But yeah, I hear you. You know, frustrating. You shouldn't have to wear heels because they're not comfortable. You yeah, be comfortable while you're working. I made it an excuse to buy really good heels. <laughs> nice. Okay. Well, you know, silver linings. Yeah. Um, okay. So, can you talk about why you chose to get into medicine and kind of the progression of your career? Yeah. So getting into medicine or the decision thereof happened at a very early stage in my life. Both my grandfathers were physicians. So growing up as a little kid, I spent most of my summer break working as their assistants in their clinic. So my maternal grandfather, he had a clinic which was like at this big, huge hall, essentially, of our home that was converted into a charity clinic. All the grandkids used to help him during summer. I think that became a highlight for me. In my mind, there was no doubt that this work is what I would do, you know, uh, forever in my life. And then things got a little more real. And I, as I grew up, I figured out, oh, my God, you have to go to medical school to be able to do what he was doing. But I feel like uh, just reflecting on my journey, because I had a taste of what awaits on the other side. It's a long road. It's a really long journey. I actually moved across the globe. I was born and raised in India. I completed medical school in India and even trained for residency, then worked. And then my husband and I decided to move here. So I retrained here. Then I trained in mindfulness. I've done a lot of training, Brittany, but I think just knowing from a very early phase in my life what uh, this field really offered. I was committed. I kept going. Long journey, but still having fun and still learning. I'm in school back with you again. So yeah, that's what, you know, inspired me. I owe it to both of my grandfathers. So can you give an example about what you did when you helped out at the clinic when you were a kid? I'm just curious. Oh, for sure. So I used to be the one who would wash wounds. There were a lot of little kids in the in the neighborhood back in the good old days. You were just, you know, they would get injured. A lot of my friends who with whom I used to play, I used to provide first aid to them. I would put band-aids after vaccinations. That was my favorite thing to do. I used to be very needle shy myself. I didn't care for getting the shots, but I helped most of the kids. So I did a lot of those paraphernalia, putting band-aids, literally and metaphorically. I gave a lot of hugs to little (laughs) kids who came to clinic and to adults as well. But I essentially helped him in very non-tedious manual tasks. And I love talking. So I would just chit-chat with him when we didn't have active patients in clinic with my grandpa, who was an amazing, amazing gentleman. Yeah. Has he passed? He has. He has passed. And But I feel like his legacy lives on. For sure. Yeah. And I mean, especially I had the pleasure of meeting your two sons and they are incredible. And they're, I mean, I just remember meeting them and I was joking. I was like, so are you guys feminists? And they were like, yes. And they're just, I mean, you have a beautiful family, a wonderful family. And you should, I mean... The good vibes have carried through generation to generation, which is really nice. Well, thank you, Brittany. I think this is just, you know, when you get the gift of uh, loving family, you pass it on and you just pay it forward. I've had a very fortunate childhood. My parents just, you know, showered us with love. I felt like I 
I'm the youngest in the family. I have an older brother, but I feel like he's just ahead of me in the number of years. Um, I'm blessed because I, I feel like I behave as a oldest sister. But I feel like it, growing up in my family, I always had a voice. I always found role models in my parents. My mom, I would say, is the biggest feminist I've known on planet Earth. And my dad supported that. He's the one who encouraged that. You know, he's the one who made it all happen. She chose not to work as my brother and I were growing. She was a teacher. But back in the days, it was really hard to find childcare. But she was involved in pretty much like every career decision or extracurricular decision, relationships decision. So I always wanted to pay it forward to my boys. And I am very proud to say that they are one of the, you know, strongest feminists I see around. I do give credit to my husband for that. Uh, A big credit and shout out to him as well. So far, I mean, I've been blessed to be surrounded by friends and family who empower me, challenge me, and just really feel fortunate. Yeah. I love that. And I think it's reciprocated too, because I'm always, I'm always really excited to be in a conversation with you because I know you'll push. If there's something that's like awkward, but it's not quite right, you will say something. And so it's helped me to get braver and just challenge more assumptions. And, you know, I remember early on in our program, we were watching some video about um, executives and it was something about management. And afterwards, the professor like wrapped it up and they're like, so do you have any feedback? And you're like, immediately were like, those were all white men. And then he immediately was like, yeah, that material I think is a little dated. Okay. And so I just like, I love that you hold people accountable and you talk about it because that's how we make progress. Because Mm -hmm. otherwise, if we don't say anything, we can't you can't make changes unless you're aware that they need to be made. Yeah, well, thank you, Brittany, for, you know, for highlighting that. I'll say that, boy, you, you just stand up for this and you encourage us all to to not settle with status quo. One thing I would say, you know, learned helplessness is something that humans just uh, naturally go through in big systems and organizations. And it's just... Um, Sometimes people see that as an efficient thing because it, you know, choosing courage over comfort does take a little bit of getting over an inertia. It's not the most natural choice that people make. You know, comfort is something we all love because our brain's uh, reward center gets activated with that model. But choosing courage can be hard sometimes. But having an environment where you can see the value of choosing courage, which you clearly saw when uh, even I called out, and I see you calling out so many different situations, and you've openly, transparently shared with the entire class your career journey of what it was like for you to be a woman leader in construction, standing up for equity, inclusion, and diversity, where like 95% of the people around you didn't, you know, felt that you were talking some foreign language, essentially. (laughs) So thank you for your advocacy and leadership. Thank you. No, that means a lot. We talked a little bit about your boys. Can you talk about your experience as a woman of color in medicine and as a mother? I know you've touched on the maternity leave process and how that kind of impacted your career. Mm -hmm. So if you're willing to speak on that, that would be amazing. Yeah, that's actually a topic very close to my heart. So granted, I had had my boys close to two decades ago. I'm not giving up my age. (laughs) 
And I would say, you know, when I reflect on how things stand today versus, you know, when I was first going through training in a system where, you know, there was some awareness around challenges for parents and women, mothers who were lactating and who were just returning from maternity leave. I believe we were very early on in our understanding of the issues. So I, yes, I was at Mayo at this point, but I don't think my experiences at Mayo were unique in any way. Or let's say learners or trainees in other professional fields. I think one thing that really was challenging was coming back to work, not having um, enough space lactation spaces or lactation rooms, even equipment at the time compared to what's available today were quite dated. What was also challenging, you know, in our training, I used to take call for 24 hours plus six because we used to hang out. So it was a long time being away from a uh, from a little kid who was 12 weeks old. So there was a lot of yeah. uh, logistical challenge in how we're going to make this work. And clearly, just considering so many challenges at the time, it didn't work out uh, for me. So was it a big deal at the time? I did feel that it was a missed opportunity for me because I wanted to, you know, continue to lactate for as long as possible. However, as I saw others go through this experience and as the awareness of this challenge grew, we realized that we had to do something about this. So we started collecting experiences, what's the research, what's best practice. I think that really helped. Understanding challenges, your own lived experience give you a firsthand view of what the challenge is, but you can't stop there. So I would say that opened my eyes to why there needed to be a systems-wide approach to challenges that, you know, people from different backgrounds, women, you know, women who are moms, uh, people who are underrepresented, what are the ways to stand up to advocate for them? And so sure enough, fast forward two decades later, you know, I'm proud to say we have a process, a very tight process, and we have multiple groups working to continuously enhance the experience of mothers who are returning back to work. It's a big group of people, physicians, administrators uh, working on improving that experience. That is very cool. So... We're welcoming more people to the floor, which is great, but boundaries are always needing to get adjusted to maintain psychological safety and kind of what you just touched on. I think I'm skipping ahead with this, but do you find that it's harder to get allies until they've had a personal experience or they've had someone next to them experience to say that they advocate for nursing women, even if they're a man and they're, they don't have to deal with lactation and all of that? Mm-hmm. How did you work to expand that? network or what's your Mm -hmm. tips on getting people because no one's going to experience every Mm -hmm. thing. I don't know. Yeah. No, (laughs) I actually, no, that's actually a really good question, Brittany, because, uh, you know, familiarity brings more empathy. You know, whenever we ourselves have gone through a situation, we we just automatically um, can connect with it at a different level, like at a deeper level. And we have firsthand understanding of a challenge if we've been through it. So to your point, I think allyship can happen in two forms. Um, You can stand up for a group that you belong to as a strong ally for that group, but you don't always have to be from that background. So I'll give you an example. We have an employee resource group at Mayo called GLOW, which is Greater Leadership Opportunities for Women. And the executive sponsor of that group 
a lot of the lactation work that happened was as a result of uh, Mr. M's advocacy. He really helped with a lot of logistical issues and understanding who we need to negotiate with and who are the stakeholders. Now, he's clearly not, you know, in that group. What he also did was, you know, in addition to, of course, the logistical and the tactical things that needed to be taken care of, he helped grow the allyship amongst men. So he held a series of barbershop talks with other white men to share his experience. You know, his wife go through the experience. So our experiences can be vicarious. But, you know, he certainly, I mean, in this situation for this specific issue, you know, you're a parent to yourself. You may not be in it directly, but you are impacted by it. So, I mean, there are so many other examples I can think about. But allyship is a calling, is a result of calling. It is also for people who are themselves lifelong learners because you really need to step in other people's shoes to truly be an ally. You know, it isn't about what you feel and what you think. It's about who are you standing up for? What are their experiences? And how can you help enhance that? I'm glad that the mic is attached to the table because otherwise it would drop. Can we talk about your current position at Mayo and how that came to be? Because I know you, you're still a practitioner, mm-hmm. but you obviously have this new responsibility mm-hmm. or it's not new anymore, but... Just curious about that. Yeah. So Mayo Clinic, Brittany, has a leadership model. It's a physician-led organization. Our CEO, Dr. Gianrico Ferrugia, is a physician. He's a gastroenterologist by training. So we follow a dyad or a triad model of leadership. So it's usually physician-administrator partnership, as well as in many instances with a nursing partner. So I serve, and I'm proud and really humbled to serve as the medical director for Mayo Mayo Clinic's Office of Equity, Inclusion, and Diversity. It is um, our key role is to synergize and strategize equity, inclusion, and diversity initiatives across the enterprise, which includes all of our sites. And we have a three-shield model at Mayo, which includes clinical practice, where we directly take care of patients, research, education. And there are offices within all of these different shields. So we have a pretty robust, uh, I would say, ecosystem from offices, groups, committees, as well as leaders at departmental division levels with our DDLs, which is Department Diversity Leaders, (laughs) as well as employee resource groups. So I'm just, the last thing I would want our listeners to think is there is one office that does this. We are the office that coordinate, that brings synergy, tools, resources, connections. um, And there are so many people in this great work at Mayo. And I'm really, really honored that I get to advocate, share, and grow the work of my outstanding colleagues at Mayo. So like for me leaving industry, that sounds like an absolute dream to be at that place. How long did it take to get there? Because was it that way when you started or... Did you have a hand in developing all of that? Because it sounds amazing. It sounds like it's really a part of the organizational culture, Mm -hmm. not just superficial. Yeah. So we've had the office for close to about 12 years now, and uh, I've been in my role for two years. There was a medical director prior to me in the role. I would say I watched the office being inaugurated at Mayo, and I was part of different activities of the office over the past decade or more. I've served in other roles like the department diversity leader. I'm part of employee resource group. So in some ways, yes, I've been involved in that journey. 
but I've really been in my role for the last two years. What I really see as futuristic with, you know, we've had great progress over the past decade. Some of us obviously have the urgency of velocity and momentum, and we'd like to see the progress pick more pace. In the last two years, I would say we have this heightened and renewed commitment from the Mayo Clinic board, our CEO president, to throughout all the shields, as you may have heard, we committed $100 million for our commitment against racism in the light of uh, Mr. Um, George Floyd's murder in Minneapolis. That's one example of how this work is being catalyzed with innovation. We have a 2030 strategic plan at Mayo where, you know, we want to transform healthcare of how we provide care. And I would say that our overall strategic plan with EID is very much aligned with our overall strategic goals as an organization. How do we want to transform it? And we want to transform it with our values. We have a set of values at Mayo uh, called the Rich Ties, and each alphabet stands for something that we really feel is integral to the care we provide. So respect, integrity, teamwork, healing, all of those. I would say everything we do as part of the office or any strategic goal that we execute on has equity, inclusion, and diversity built in. That's our goal. We want to create a global environment of empowered belonging for everyone. That is amazing. Um, obviously, it takes a long time for... I mean, it's, it's just really cool to see how deeply integrated it is in the organization. I'm sure it's been... I mean, the past two years have been challenging, obviously, but... It also has to feel really rewarding to see this work that maybe wasn't moving at the pace that you wanted all of a sudden start to, like you say, catalyze and progress Mm -hmm. being made. And that has to be really rewarding. So as people become more comfortable being themselves, as we're becoming a more inclusive world, which is great, how do you approach conversations when you are working with a group that you may not have all the context or you're not educated? What's the right way to approach a conversation with someone where you don't necessarily have learned experience or, or familiarity with their background so that you can be respectful and make sure they feel welcome? Yeah, I've often thought about this, Brittany, because I've found myself in this situation many times. I would say in my hat as a physician, I try to do that with my patients. So as a physician, I tend to have an investigative approach. And I use that same approach when I'm leaning into group interactions. If we are trying to move the agenda on inclusion with a group that may not fully buy in, for example. So my three-step process, if I may, would be, you know, being curious. What are we trying to achieve with the group? What are we coming at? The second would be, along with curiosity, it's good to be aware of the assumptions that I may be coming in with, like what are my potential blind spots? Sometimes I think, you know, we tend to be very positional. And I know we've learned that in negotiations too, like I'm coming in with this agenda and what's yours. And that that, that creates a very much, uh, you know, us versus them mentality. So I try not to have that at all. And most importantly, by the end of the conversation, did we achieve the outcome? And the outcome doesn't necessarily have to mean agreement, but did we create awareness? Did we create a healthy dialogue or a debate? Or we met people where they were, did we move them along in the right direction? So I try to have a good sight of did we get where we wanted to? 
I think that also is really nice to hear because sometimes it's challenging when you want to make a lot of things you just wish would move faster. And so the idea that you can recognize that some progress is better than no progress at all and the positive intent and and keeping things rolling, it's not going to go away. It's not going to be solved overnight. I think we had a long conversation over drinks last year about that where you're like, it's a grind. It takes time. But... You know, if you're moving forward, at least you're, you know, moving forward with the curious approach and all of that. So mistakes do happen. We're humans. No one's perfect. How do you recommend making amends or growing so you maintain a relationship with someone or you can repair it after you've maybe shown bias or ignorance of some sort, but you've had that positive intent behind it all? You know, I've, I think these can be tricky times when things don't go as you intended them to or as you had planned. And sometimes you had even re- rehearsed the script, but it didn't go the way that you, uh, that you wanted it to. So I've really learned a double A approach to those situations, which is, you know, acknowledge that this didn't go as you and I had planned or as I had planned and then apologize. And, you know, there's a lot of ego that comes into play sometimes. And that's one thing I constantly remind myself of. You know, the outcome is always bigger than an individual, like an outcome that's going to impact our organization or a group of people that we are standing up for. So I, I use that double A approach, acknowledge, apologize, put it behind, keep moving forward. I've used that more number of times yeah. that I wanted. But it's also I overall I think it's made me way more humble. I've seen that assumptions play a big role in when things don't go the way we intended them to. And mistake is, you know, it's not a definite thing, you know, what may be right for me, maybe a mistake, you know, as you look at it. So there is a lot of facts, but then there are many interpretations around things. So it's okay to be flexible, even though you may be the right person, if the relationship is important, you know, I'll go ahead and acknowledge things aren't going the way they need to needed to or we intended to and I apologize. Very mature. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. It, like whenever I hear you talk about this stuff, it always, I'm like, it just makes so much sense. It's so easy. Yeah. And then it's like, then you get into the real world and you're like, okay, there's a lot of things at play here. So, and we talked about this kind of at the top of the conversation, but taking that first step to speak up when you're afraid of negative consequences, you're afraid, you know, that especially when you are representing or speaking for a minority group, mm-hmm. that it will just backlash. So it takes a lot of courage to speak up when something is wrong and to do it in a way that doesn't feel adversarial. In my experience, it's it's how do I enter this conversation in a way that we can have it? Because if you go in with you know pointing out something that's wrong, all of a sudden people get defensive and you don't make any headway. Mm-hmm. And so how do you do that on the regular I mean, it, yeah. How are you, you, is the question. Yeah. Well, I honestly, Brittany, I think it's, um, you know, it's a marathon. We learn every single day, you know, what works, what doesn't work. And then we keep uh, enforcing behaviors that we found to be beneficial or helpful. So I would share that a few different things that I've learned from my colleagues, seniors, uh, my kids, friends is, you know, wherever possible, use data 
Because when there's emotionality, you know, the two sides can be butting heads. But when you bring data to the table and you can make a case based on what you're seeing, if you can get time trending data, if you can get outcomes data, if you can get data specific to process, uh, by all means, use data. Because when people see numbers, somehow things start making more sense. You'll you'll still have laggards, naysayers, fence-sitters who will pretend that they are not seeing the data. But I think you'll reduce that number. You'll, we tend to move more people along when there is data. The second piece is stories. I wouldn't discount the power of stories. Like if we look at George Floyd, for example, right? I mean... It is a story that moved the entire world. It was one man and so many others. But I'm like talking of this specific one. There was story after story. And then there came this story, right? So I think it's really important to realize when we have a burning platform to drive systemic level change. And then I would say a personal mantra, which I've learned from my colleagues um, at Mayo. You may be aware I run a conference called GRIT, GRIT for Women in Medicine. And my partner um, in that, one of my colleagues at Mayo, you know, we went back and forth with what do we want to name this conference, which was really meant to address gender equity, a balance of leadership in medicine, and to really promote the gap that we saw, numbers, data, of uh, women-led healthcare organizations versus not. During our first year at GRIT, a group of our colleagues who gave a talk on microaggressions came up with a framework, the GRIT framework, which honestly, I've used every single day, every single day, and I'm not exaggerating. So the GRIT framework to address microaggressions or injustices or discriminatory behavior is the G is gather. First of all, you know, when you see injustice happening or microaggressions happening, and I've seen you in class, Brittany, you know, you do need to gather yourself and ask, is this my moment to act or am I going to sit on it and get more data and act at a later time? So you have to gather your thoughts. The second is restate, which could be something as simple as, did I hear you say XYZ to Brittany today. And then you inquire, I wonder what made you say that. And then you talk it out. Well, did you know when you say this, the message you convey is so women were great negotiators, right? (laughs) So you go back to your friend and say, I wonder what made you say that. So I was gathering my thoughts, let me say that, which I still am. But, you know, so you can follow that, the grid framework, gather, restate, inquire, talk it out. Sometimes, you know, in the heat of the moment, the brain really wants to act. And you may not, as you say, be saying the most effective thing to address that behavior. Can you talk about RISE a little bit? And I know, so GRIT is another group as well. Mm -hmm. It's a framework and a group. But can Mm -hmm. you talk about RISE? Absolutely. You know, I love talking about RISE. So RISE is a framework that I came up with as part of a leadership challenge program that I participated in at Mayo. I use that framework for faculty development. I serve as a vice chair for faculty development in general internal medicine. So it started as a framework for human and talent development. With the success of the framework, which is reflect and 
Inspire, Strengthen, Empower, R-I-S-E, Arise, we ended up publishing that as a framework to be utilized to develop faculty in a programmatic, systematic program approach. Fast forward couple of years when I took the role of the medical director of Mayo Clinic's Office of Equity, Inclusion, and Diversity, you know, we started thinking about can this framework be used to develop systems, to train systems, to train groups and teams to really commit, but then activate, most importantly, activate on the equity, inclusion, and diversity work. So now we are in year two. We concluded the second round of the Mayo Clinic Rise for Equity Conference. It's a national conference, which we are hoping to grow globally. And uh, we invite industry partners from, of course, within healthcare, as well as outside of healthcare, to come up with uh, collaborative solutions to address opportunities for whole business approaches. Within healthcare, you know, we've like, for example, at Mayo, we've broken it down to clinical practice, education, research. So we have a lot of programming focused to that. But during this three-day conference, which will be in Minneapolis next year, so just putting a plug in to anybody who's interested, August 10th to 12th, we will be in Minneapolis. It's three days of the art, the science, and transformation of equity, inclusion, and diversity. And I hope that I get to see you there, Brittany. I know. I was like, I can't do that. I'm not in healthcare. And then you were like, no, you can come if you're not in healthcare. And I was like, okay, yeah, I, I will be there. So I will be there. I'll just put it on my calendar now. If the days are already set, that's easy. So that's really cool. And then to close, we have to go to school again. How do you feel about the progress that you've made so far? And how can people continue to help move this world to a better place in general where everyone is given the opportunities that they deserve. Yeah, Brittany, I um, I certainly have the urgency of driving faster, bigger, more meaningful change. Um, I also have realized, you know, this is a marathon. There are going to be three steps forward, two steps behind. So I don't want to lose sight of where we've come from. And while we live life in prospect, we learn in retrospect. So the way I keep going forward with this work is looking back and seeing where we've come from. I would say that brings me joy. I feel we are heading in the right direction. And the only way to continue this work is to foster partnerships, is to disseminate allyship. So this conversation that we are having today, um, having you as a partner in school and, you know, in this few months that we've known each other, you know, we are recording this podcast. And I feel it's these, you know, serendipity in many cases cascades this work forward. And I'm hopeful that there are many such interactions happening across the globe that will move this work forward. I also feel that the overall pace of this and organizational commitment has definitely become more explicit across healthcare as well as outside of healthcare. I see more and more companies, nonprofits, schools, everybody really committing to the importance of this work and how this should not be done by a small sector of our society. So I'm very optimistic about that. Um, And finally, I would say, you know, if you derive true joy and meaning from this work, you're in it for a longer run. My mantra is to not postpone my joy And I would just like to leave our listeners with that. Don't postpone your joy. Do the kind of things that bring you real joy. And at the end of the day, if your actions are taking you towards your higher meaning, you'll know that what you're doing is the right thing to do. 
I love that so much. I think that this will waterfall to all of our listeners and because I have I've been so inspired by you every single time I've gotten to interact with you. I'm just like always I'm like, where's Anjali when I come to school? So thank you so much for sharing your perspective and the work that you do. I appreciate you so much. I look up to you. I think I cherish our relationship and you're just amazing. And so yeah, rise this year. Anjali is amazing. Yeah, I, I not much else to say except for just keep being good people to each other. And yeah, <laughs> I'll wrap it up adding my gratitude, Brittany, you make everything so much more fun, joy, the optimism and the, um, the radiance, the energy that you bring. Um, it's infectious. And I'm so glad I was infected by it. And, <laughs> and I, I look for you. So thank you for being you for everything that you're doing. I don't think any of this work is about a position that any of us hold. But it's that real commitment that you role model just so boldly. So thank you for being you. And once again, thank you for having me. Yes. Thank you for being on it. I'm a business lesbian. Yes, you are. <laughs>